Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Blockchain for the Billions. I'm Cami Darling here with my co-host Alejandro Ballesteros. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining us today. And today we're here to talk all things the Ethereum merge with James He, who is currently an Ethereum core developer with Prismatic Labs. Previously had a seven-year tenure at uh, JP Morgan as a full-stack engineer. And James, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We're super excited to talk all things ETH, all things merge. Um, and it's great to have someone who's working at the ground level like yourself. Um, but before we get into everything, we want to give a giant shout out to all the Ethereum core devs out there for their hard work on executing the merge. Um, we believe the merge is an unprecedented uh, happening in all things open source software in terms of the amount of effort it takes to collaborate at scale and uh, all the coordination that had to happen for something of this magnitude to really happen. And so we really just wanted to start this episode off um, acknowledging all that hard work and all that collaboration um, and just saying thank you for, for making this possible. Yeah, huge shout out to all the developers that made this possible, a huge moment in blockchain history. So kudos to all of you. Yeah, so such a monumental effort. Um, I think it took almost seven years um, uh, to reach uh, fruition with uh, three or so years of uh, just pure research. Um, so I was uh, extremely lucky and honored to participate at the very end of sort of seeing it through the finish line. Yeah, that's super exciting to get to witness and kind of be, you know, like down in the trenches with everyone else making it all happen. So um, we're excited to hear all about it from you. Um, James, first things first, in layman's terms, and if possible, what is the Ethereum merge and why does it matter? Yeah, um, I've heard it described as sort of swapping out the jet engine um, uh, of a jet in sort of mid-flight. And, and so the Ethereum merge is switching uh, consensus uh, protocols um, from proof of work to proof of stake. And um, uh, Ethereum is this uh, sort of decentralized uh, blockchain. So everyone sort of runs their own instance of this uh, of this node and the consensus mechanism is the core engine because that's how uh, each of these uh, individual nodes agrees on what is the real state of the chain. And so uh, the this ability to sort of migrate from one consensus model to another consensus model and sort of have it more or less seamless for end users is, uh, is a monumental effort. So what will sort of the implications of the merge be now that it has happened? It, it really, um, one of the biggest impacts is it uh, decreases energy usage uh, by what was stated like 99.95%, uh, where the previous consensus model uh, in proof of work uh, requires GPUs uh, to sort of uh, process um, this uh, this puzzle and, and try to get the answer to this puzzle. And it requires a lot of energy and switching to this uh, proof of stake model where uh, you essentially have to stake an amount of money in almost like an escrow account. 
and you get rewarded for uh, doing things correctly, and then you get uh, heavily punished if you're trying to uh, sort of manipulate the network in any way. Um, I see. I've heard it also be described as like the energy, the amount of energy that's being saved is similar to like shutting off a power grid of like a country the size of Finland, which is kind of insane. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I've heard uh, numbers thrown around um, something like 0.2% of the world's uh, energy uh, is saved through this uh, migration. And um, uh, another aspect uh, of this uh, is uh, the security. So um, uh, a lot of the security uh, model has changed with this uh, consensus mechanism and also um, with uh, this uh, proof of stake uh, consensus, um, there's a lot of new properties uh, to Ethereum that could make the uh, the value is sort of deflationary. And so you've probably heard this like ultrasound money theme going around. Um, and, and that's all part of the uh, Ethereum merge. So with the sort of like environmental eco-friendly impacts and the security impacts of this, it's probably safe to say that this event will trigger, if not encourage, more mainstream adoption of these technologies? Yeah, definitely. I, I think from an engineering perspective, in terms of adoption, it removes, it really removes the hardware requirement. Mm -hmm. And so I think that gives um, uh, people a lot more freedoms to sort of try it out. Um, because you don't have that upfront cost of uh, sort of uh, participating with uh, purely the hardware, uh, now you can uh, participate even on test nets um, uh, through pure software. And so uh, I, I think that is a core component of uh, mainstream adoption. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. I think um, you know, it's absolutely a huge catalyst for mainstream adoption. Um, you know, not only from an ESG standpoint, in, in terms of seeing the amount of institutions that are now much more eager and interested in entering the space, um, you know, via an environmentally friendly uh, layer one. But I think also, um, you know, the fact that we've lowered the barriers to entry uh, for people to be able to come in and validate transactions. And I think that's incredibly important, um, which I think is what you're referring to. But I'd like to hone in on this uh, concept of lowering these barriers to entry and kind of how that's related to the economic efficiency that proof of stake provides over proof of work. So, you know, there's been this kind of large uh, and interesting debate about energy efficiency in layer ones. And it's very clear that proof of stake is drastically, uh, you know, much more energy efficient than proof of work. But in terms of the economic efficiency, um, you know, as measured by the amount of capital kind of required to validate transactions on the network, uh, can you talk a little bit about how this changes the landscape? So with with this change, I mean, we really want to make it so that, um, you know, users of this network uh, is paying as little as possible to get the most security out of uh, out of the network. 
And so uh, one of the interesting aspects um, of proof of stake uh, and sort of a, a Ethereum migrating to it, uh, there is the EIP uh, 1559. Uh, and so Ethereum has all these like different specs, which is an, another cool aspect of Ethereum. But uh, EIP uh, one five five nine um, makes it so that based on the usage of uh, um, uh, usage of a, a Ethereum, uh, based on how full a block is, uh, it'll make it either uh, inflationary to incentivize uh, participation, or uh, it'll uh, have uh, a burning. Uh, of 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 a base fee uh, to make the the value sort of deflationary. So with the switch to proof of stake, issuance uh, is not by uh, you mining the uh, the block um, uh, per se. Uh, whereas before, it's like if you were the lucky person to uh, mine the block, then you would uh, get um, some. A large amount uh, of money uh, issued to you. Um, now it's uh, you just participating in in the the network. Uh, you'll get sort of like a base um, uh, uh, increase, and then um, based on the participation on the network itself, it'll uh, sort of adjust to be uh, inflationary or, or deflationary. And um, there's a lot of questions that that brings up for me, but. EIP 1559, um, is that what is commonly referred to as the London fork or the, sorry, not the London fork, but the London uh, upgrade? Yeah, so uh, with the, um, uh, within a, Ethereum, we have the execution clients uh, and the consensus uh, clients. And uh, each of them have their own hard forks. Uh, uh, which uh, sometimes get a little gets a little confusing, but part of the London hard fork on the uh, Ethereum client um, or the execution uh, client uh, that that's where uh, that sort of started, and um, uh, uh, but that was already a, a part of um, uh, Ethereum proof of work, uh, but now uh, migrating to proof of stake. Uh, you don't get that uh, reward when you mine the block. So it's uh, it has a bigger effect uh, in proof of stake. Okay, yeah, um, I've seen, you know, a lot of this. And uh, really, like, my knowledge of this is just because the amount of issuance with proof of stake drastically decreases, right? Like, if you don't have to go out and buy all this hardware and spend all this extra money, um, you know, economically, users um, should be willing to validate transactions for a very low cost as it takes very little energy um, or an effort on the user perspective to kind of do. And so I think that makes sense. And, you know, basically if we assume that, um, you know, there's a ton of activity on the Ethereum network, then I think what you're saying is that via this London hard fork, um, it's ultimately possible that Ethereum becomes very deflationary because there's very low issuance um, from actually validating transactions, but there's a lot of burn from just the transactions occurring on the network. That That's exactly right. So uh, that's usually 
um, part of this thing called uh, the triple halving. Uh, you you might have heard of that um, with the Ethereum merge. Uh, so part of it is that uh, the removal of that issuance um, from uh, purely like mining blocks. Uh, and then there is the burn uh, fee uh, that's uh, associated to the EIP uh, uh, 1559. Um, and then uh, the last aspect is the staking aspect. So um, because you're sort of um, incentivized to stake this uh, uh, amount, uh, then there is sort of less um, ether to go around. Awesome. Can you clarify on the burning um, via EIP 1559? Uh, is the amount of Ethereum burned uh, pro rata? In other words, is it proportional to the amount of Ethereum that's moved in transactions um, that are that are occurring? Or is it just proportional to the number of transactions that are occurring on the network? It, it's it's based on how, how much uh, the... Uh, gas is used in in the in the specific block um so if it's more than uh uh 50 percent uh filled uh then it, it'll burn um uh i believe it's a 12.5 percent uh and then if it's uh sort of below that amount it'll um it it, it won't be burning that great and yeah obviously 12 and a half percent is um, you know, a much higher number than the 0.5% approximately that's being issued. Um, and so, yeah, it, it stands to reason that as we see more activity on the network with proof of stake, Ethereum becomes or is likely to become um, deflationary, which uh, is really interesting. And I think um, we've talked a little bit about, you know, how this impacts economic efficiency, energy efficiency. And, um, you know, I think we've kind of hinted at how this impacts decentralization just by kind of acknowledging that it really lowers the barriers for participating in, in this consensus layer of the network. Um, but I'd be interested to hear, you know, your take on that and, um, you know, kind of having that mainstream perspective in mind, uh, how exactly does this impact decentralization over the long run? Yeah, I, I think removing the hardware requirement is just a, uh, a, a really big deal. Um, uh, there's a, a, a lot of uh, criticism comes um, uh, to Ethereum saying like possibly like the rich get richer uh, in this model. Uh, but I'd like to sort of argue on the other perspective, like if, if there was a hardware requirement and it was not uh, purely based on um, sort of uh, the monetary aspect uh, uh, itself, uh, then if you were a large player in the in the system, uh, then you could build your own hardware at a decreased cost. Um, so in terms of participation, it's uh, it's it's actually much harder because you you can sort of centralize on on the hardware creation. Um, and uh, if you're a bigger player, then, then you can build your own. But um, uh, from another perspective, uh, because the hardware requirement is, uh, is sort of removed, um, I, I think uh, it will increase 
uh, at least a lot of people wanting to try it out. You could, you could actually run it at home now um, on your own computer in, in the test nets and see what it's doing and interact with the software itself and sort of building trust uh, with, with the software itself. And also uh, with this move um, uh, sort of uh, uh, before it was very centralized on a certain uh, amount of uh, mining software. And uh, now uh, with the uh, switch to proof of stake, there's um, I believe six different clients written in different languages. Um, so in terms of uh, resiliency uh, and sort of decentralization in terms of a development perspective, um, the um, migration to proof of stake uh, is, is pretty awesome. So like if you're a, um, like a Rust developer and you're like uh, prior to this, uh, you, you, you wanted to participate and you wanted to contribute, but you just didn't know like how um instead of having to build like an entire uh software yourself now like there are different teams that have built out different uh, uh consensus clients in different languages so you can uh sort of participate in that way um and so uh at my comp uh at, at my company um prismatic labs we built um uh we build it in uh go uh so uh, if you're interested in Go, it's uh, an open source technology. You can submit a, a pull request there and we'll, we'll take a look. Awesome. I think that's like a very good segue, very insightful and a very good segue into, you know, kind of the next thing that we're really curious about from this kind of builder and mainstream perspective is, you know, how does this merge really impact builders who are building on Ethereum today? Um, does it make it easier to interact with web3.js um, I know you mentioned things about, you know, now there being kind of several instances of the consensus client written in different languages. Um, How does that actually impact builders who want to write smart contracts and then maybe a front end that interfaces with that? So, uh, so the nice part about the migration is that for uh, users focused on the application layer of, of the blockchain, it really doesn't... Um, uh, make that that much of a change as uh, we're introducing this new infrastructure for a purely the consensus aspect. Um, so in terms of uh, Web3.js and, you know, development there, um, there's not uh, too much impact. Uh, however, uh, this, this move uh, does enable more, uh, uh, well, it, it sets up the base uh, for scalability, uh, which is probably something else that we'll end up talking about, but building on on L2s, uh, it does it does um, uh, impact in, in, in that regard. Uh, but in terms of builders on the infrastructure side, uh, it's opening up like a gateway for um, a lot of different uh, types of plugins and sidecars and uh, whole like ecosystem of services that you can uh, run along with your execution client and your um, consensus client. Um, so it's almost like a uh, little like Lego pieces. You, you run this like microcosm of, 
of services locally. And I think this is really opening up the doors on like, how can we make this infrastructure space and building on it uh, more interesting and, and sort of more open? Yeah. Um, so now if I run, uh, you know, an application on Ethereum, I can actually run my own node and it can be a truly decentralized application. I likely uh, will have to resort to like node hosting software, you know, much less, right? Um, so I think that's yeah. kind of a way that, you know, it impacts both decentralization and builders. And I think it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, you know, speaking of uh, decentralization and, and, you know, kind of applications, I'd love to talk a little bit about decentralized finance and understanding, you know, if having this negative base rate that you can earn for just validating transactions um, impacts the landscape of DeFi and Ethereum. Like, do you think that it's possible that we see, you know, more DeFi projects incorporating a term structure for interest rates or, uh, you know, maybe um, having safer yields because, um, you know, they, there's now the notion of a credit spread that's kind of endogenous to the ecosystem. What do you think? Um, I, I think with proof of stake comes like, more predictability and that's definitely much better for a uh, like a finance space um i i sure hope that it increases uh, uh more more interesting applications i think I, I mean that's really the lifeblood of of the blockchain like um one of the biggest reasons why i ended up joining this uh this space in the first place was my curiosity of like uh what exactly is this like what is blockchain giving us that uh web2 technologies don't already give us um and i got my answer in a interesting way when i first learned about uh, flash loans um and uh and so prior to working at prismatic labs uh, uh I, I worked in the payment space uh at jp morgan for uh, you know, uh, over seven years and, uh, uh, particularly in, uh, sort of business credit cards. And I would hear, um, uh, I, I would learn about, uh, how all of that worked and, you know, making a payment in, uh, Asia or something like that. And, uh, you would have to go through this, these like ETL jobs and, it would have you would have to wait until the end of the day before all your transactions would come to the to the U.S. Um, and uh, improving on those technologies w wouldn't actually make um, that architecture like faster because it it still needed to wait that uh, day to reconcile everything and then sort of like uh, pass these bulk files to to the U.S. and uh, if you wanted to make that any faster, uh, you could do it through APIs, but APIs are not standard across, um, uh, you know, different companies and different countries. So uh, it's it's just not a very scalable um, dynamic to sort of have an API built for Poland and then a different API built for China and then. Uh, trying trying to do it that way yeah. um, it's like the lego stacks are not um you know very broad and abstract right it, it yeah. creates a lot of redundancy at a global scale and um it makes and, and, it harder to build 
on top of things, right? Right. And and so going back to that example of, uh, of flash loans is uh, it was a really cool concept um, when I first uh, sort of heard about it. Uh, in normal finance space, I, I would think like you would uh, go uh, get a loan that's one transaction and then you could go buy something uh, as another transaction. Uh, and then uh, like, let's say you go like buy apples uh, and then you sell apples, that's a third transaction. And then you pay off your loan, that's a fourth transaction. But all these transactions, they're all asynchronous. So uh, once you take your loan, the pandemic could happen and then it like messes up your next uh uh, business thing. Uh, whereas in, in flash and, and usually taking out that loan requires some sort of collateral. Um, and so on blockchain, because it sort of shares that single state, uh, you could write an application, uh, where it runs all four of these transactions almost compressed as a single transaction. And so you could take a loan out for, a hundred million dollars, uh, as long as you could pay that transaction fee, uh, you could uh, go buy a certain token and then trade it for another token uh, and sort of get that arbitrage and then pay off your loan at the end of your, um, uh, at the end of this uh, smart contract or uh, this like way of compressing these transactions. And if it doesn't work out, um, then, it, it sort of gets rolled back. So um, you, you don't get that like benefit in the current uh, fin financial system. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes it easier in the long run to see very efficient markets. Um, you know, what you're alluding to is basically this abstraction where, you know, a user can just say, Hey, I want to borrow money. And this is the exact way that I plan on using it. Um, does this make sense to you? And if it makes sense, then, you know, you earn money for coming up with these route of transactions that ultimately increase price efficiency. Um, and if not, then nothing is done. And I think it's a really interesting concept as well. Um, related to that concept uh, is the concept of MEV. And I remember we discussed this in person a little bit, but you had some thoughts on kind of the current state of MEV on Ethereum and, you know, how the merge really impacts uh, MEV. And so... I'd love to hear a little bit more about that um, and just your perspective on that. MEV is sort of on the unfortunate side of blockchain technologies. And um, uh, for those of you that are listening, um, it used to be called a minor extractable value and now it's sort of called maximum extractable value. But it's this concept of like, uh, when you're lucky enough to propose the block, you have the power to put the transactions in the block in the particular order that you um, would like. And so um, uh, not only that, you can also see what all the transactions in the mempool sort of look like. Um, so you could do things that might not be so good for the network, which are like um, you, you could uh, front run uh, people, you could um, sort of 
uh, steal transactions in a sense. And like, oh, this person has like this awesome arbitrage opportunity. I'm going to do that myself and um, uh, add that transaction into the block and, uh, you know, get that finalized in, in the blockchain. So uh, being a miner, um, you have a lot of power because you get to choose the transactions that you um, put in. So uh, to try to address this, um, uh, there's this idea of the proposer builder separator um, that's uh, sort of uh, coming to uh, Ethereum where uh, you would connect to uh, a specialized builder that would go try to optimize how much money you, you would make. And then um, uh, you... Uh, don't need to go figure all of this stuff out yourself, which is an interesting industry in, in, in itself. Uh, but maybe eventually we'll get some kind of MEV smoothing. So um, rewards are more evenly distributed amongst um, uh, all of the builders. Not, not that like one builder is taking advantage of, of everything. Um, so and so this, uh, this distinction, yeah of roles um, in forming blocks. Is that um, a feature of uh, you know, the merge and has that been kind of implemented or is this on the roadmap? So um, it's almost like a POC right now. Um, it's not enshrined in the product protocol itself. That's part of the uh, proposer builder separator um, uh, sort of roadmap. Uh, but uh, you can use uh, an MEV relay now and use a remote builder uh, instead of using the execution client to uh, build your, your block, you can actually take advantage of this right now. Very cool. Um, you know, I think another thing that just kind of helps us is as we were talking earlier, you know, I think lowering the barriers to actually forming and validating blocks um, should, you know, help the MEV problem because theoretically now anyone can do this. And so, you know, before when only one person who had like the infrastructure to, you know, basically mine the most transactions was able to harness the most words, um, that's no longer the case, right? Now it's kind of an even playing field and many participants are able to, you know, at least engage in this behavior. Um, but yeah, hopefully we can phase this out and, and make it a little bit more equitable. Um, you know, I've always wondered, yeah. what, what's your perspective on the encryption of transaction data in mempool? And, you know, is anything being done there? And could that be a viable solution for addressing this? That's, that's a great question. I, I don't think I have a great answer for that, uh, being on the consensus uh, layer um, only. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, like an execution client dev would would answer that a little bit better than, than what I could answer. Sure, yeah. Um, just, you know, kind of something I'm curious, very high level, but yeah. So I think with, with that, um, you know, I'd love to transition over to, and I, I think you addressed this a little bit, but um, we'd love to transition over talking about scalability and 
you know, kind of what's in the works via the current roadmap um, and, you know, kind of what updates are coming up? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the most exciting thing. So um, right now, the uh, all of the core devs sort of have some breathing room, but uh, uh, very soon here, we're going to r- start ramping up again and uh, working on the next big update uh, for for Ethereum. Uh, so some of you might have seen the the urges that uh, uh, Vitalik uh, published on the roadmap for uh, Ethereum. So uh, the next one uh, after the merge is the surge. Uh, and so um, the next big thing that we're working on um, in uh, is withdrawals because uh, people staking um, would like to, uh, uh, you know, be able to withdraw their their money from their stake. And uh, the other aspect uh, is EIP uh, 4844, uh, which is called proto-dank sharding. And so um, Ethereum's answer to this scalability problem is uh, this hub and spoke model where uh, we have the the layer one that provides all the security. And then we have uh, something called the layer two uh, where uh, we can then process more transactions um, at a, uh, a discount. So um, as part of uh, the, the scaling solution, um, uh, there's a full sharding uh, sort of roadmap. And the first piece of that is called a, a proto-dank sharding. And um, uh, in terms of scalability uh, for the blockchain, the blockchain's blocks move uh, at a predictable rate. So uh, in in Ethereum's case, it's uh, uh, 12 seconds per slot. So you can uh, add uh, blocks um, uh, sort of every 12 seconds. And so in terms of scalability, uh, either you have to do that faster uh, and add uh, blocks in faster, or uh, you can increase the size of those blocks. So um, those are uh, really the ways that um, scalability would would occur. And uh, Ethereum uh, has the strong focus on uh, this uh, decentralization aspect. And Part of the decentralization aspect is uh, making sure that you don't have unreasonable uh, hardware requirements. And that, that goes back into like the proof of work uh, migration to proof of stake. Um, so uh, the current state of things, uh, if we're uh, sort of proposing uh, a block every uh, 12 seconds and each block is um, around one uh, megabyte of data, uh, then your database of um, sort of the blockchain uh, is growing at seven gigabytes a day. And uh, vertical scaling on this, right? If you, you know, 10X it, like we need to make Ethereum faster, um, would be, you know, 70 gigs a day, which is, probably unreasonable for um, someone that's trying to, you know, participate in the network. And uh, something that's growing at that speed 
um, is uh, is sort of unmanageable. And and so um, uh, in the full dank sharding model, how how they're going about this is uh, they're almost converting the entire network into uh, RAID storage or a giant CD. And so uh, using uh, sort of cryptography and, and, and math, uh, you only need to store a piece of that uh, total data um, uh, yourself. And then uh, in the protocol, it makes sure that uh, the remaining data still exists in the network. Okay. Um, so basically you can connect nodes in the network such that right. you know, I store a proportion of it and other nodes stores a different proportion. And, you know, maybe I can um, then uh, access the portion that I don't have by another node. I'm sure it's much right. more complicated um, because, you so, know, I can't have the only copy of one piece of the data of the entire network, but. Um, right. Yeah, I'm sure it's some sort of like network that for data storage that sounds pretty interesting. And so mostly so, it's like a data storage problem, huh? Um, yeah, I mean that's that's one piece of it. Um, the other piece of it is the layer twos, right? Um, so layer twos, uh, they can go much faster than uh, how blocks move on the layer one, but they need to. Uh, you know, publish their uh, data on on the layer one to get the security. Uh, so part of the protodank sharding aspect, the sh uh, the actual shards won't uh, won't come in where it's like turning this uh, network into this sort of giant uh, CD almost. Um, uh, but it is um, creating a space for these uh, L2s. And, and so um, on the L2, um, they're usually uh, EVM uh, compatible, but I guess they don't have to. Uh, you can use these, um, these layer twos, but all, because all of the transactions are published and uh, finalized on the layer one, uh, you can sort of uh, take advantage of the speed on the layer two, but still, still get the, um, security on the on the layer one and so what protodank sharding uh sort of uh, gives is a special transaction that um stores a blob of data instead of an evm compatible transaction so it doesn't actually run the like a smart contract or something like that um it's a it's a data blob uh that that's there that can be verified um, and so uh, uh, part of this roadmap to, uh, to scaling is allowing layer twos to have more space on the layer one, uh, but trying not to you know, slow down how, um, uh, how the network flows. Um, and also keeping in mind that uh, you know, users can't just be growing their data at these like exponential uh, rates um, uh, uh, and uh, I, I think Ethereum is is solving this in in a pretty pretty creative way that uh, you know other blockchains will will have a similar problem and they'll need to address that as well.
Yeah, it sounds like it's a very synergistic model with layer twos. And that's something that I was curious about is, you know, what's really going to be the relationship between layer twos and the layer one, right? Like, are you guys going to incorporate enough scalability in the L1 itself such that these L2s just get phased out um, and are not really necessary for most applications? Or um, is it actually a synergistic roadmap that depends on layer twos for scalability? Um, but yeah, it sounds like it's kind of the latter here. And I, I'd love to hear about how um, layer twos can kind of use these data blobs that you're talking about to improve their scalability as well and uh, improve their footprint in terms of, you know, transactions they're handling from the network. Yeah, so um, layer twos, um, there's really two different kinds of like uh, roll-up uh, mechanisms. There's like the optimistic roll-up and then there's the ZK um, roll-up. And so uh, both of these will need space on the uh, Ethereum layer one to add their add their data and then uh, they essentially have like a uh, like a small smart contract there that sort of uh, sits and um, manages uh, this communication between the the layer one and, and, and layer two um, I, I think uh, some people um, describe it as like if you had a tab um, at your local bar you can make transactions all you want on the side and then um, which is essentially the layer to it, but every time uh, uh, at a at a certain rate, you have to settle um, on the layer one, and and so that's how the layer twos actually get that um, that security. Very cool. Um, with that being said, something that a lot of people are interested in in the layer two space is the rise of zero knowledge proofs, and more particularly CKEVM in Polygon. Um, you know, what do you know about the state of ZK EVM today? And, you know, how does the merge impact this technology? I'm not sure if the merge has any direct impact on this uh, technology. So um, so please don't quote me on this. Um, <laughs> but zero, zero knowledge proofs is, is um, really interesting uh, concept. Like you can, uh, you can verify uh, this thing with, uh, you can verify whether um, someone has more money or less money than you without having to know the individual amount. And um, uh, I, I believe it's pretty um, like hardware, oh, well, right now it's pretty computation intensive uh, to try to solve. And so uh, I'm, I'm super interested in the space, but um, I've, I've, heard, I've heard mixed things on uh, its uh, limitations. So because it's so computation intensive, um, there's like certain li limitations to uh, what it can do and how how fast it can go. So uh, you'll, you've probably heard of like uh, uh, Arbitrum and Optimism. Uh, that's an optimistic uh, rollup. Uh, and so uh, uh, like the name suggests, you're, you're publishing these like optimistically. So it can move much faster 
uh, and it has a lot more freedoms in terms of uh, what it can do. But with zero knowledge proofs, uh, if you're going beyond uh, just like transactions and you're doing these like complex uh, things in, in smart contracts, I believe that there are some limitations uh, in that space, it, especially with like the computation, like how long does it take to actually run this thing? Yeah, it sounds like it's still pretty um, uh, nascent technology and I think everyone's really excited to see what happens. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think we'll we'll kind of have this question answered in the next couple of years, I guess. I'd love to, um, as a final question, something that I myself has been cur have been curious about, just seeing, um, you know, kind of the landscape of applications on layer ones, I think, it's clear to me that Solana has a lot of applications that um, are very sensitive for latency. And so these tend to be like real-time feeds or um, you know, certain high-frequency trading types of applications. Um, I'd love to understand you know, your opinions on, do you think ETH finality time will ever decrease to the level that it will be competitive with Solana? Um, or, you know, how do you kind of see uh, that ETH serving that need for low latency applications? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the low latency will, will happen on the layer twos. So in okay. terms of finality for, uh, for Ethereum, uh, there were talks about uh, finalization at the individual slot level. And so right now, uh, finality happens um, after an epoch is uh, justified. And so uh, for those uh, who are not familiar, there's 32 slots in an epoch. So that's um, you know one block every 12 seconds. And, and so it's roughly uh, 6.4 minutes um, per epoch. And so, uh, an epoch is justified and then an epoch is finalized. So um, uh, it could take, you know, up to, um, or it, it, it could take at least, uh, uh, you know, 12, 12 13 minutes uh, for finalization in, in, in that regard. Uh, or if uh, uh, things are sort of uh, uh, working very smoothly, it could be, you know, six, uh, 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 you know, like around six minutes. Um, but I, it's, I don't believe that it's going to ever, uh, go down to Solano's levels. Uh, but with this, um, uh, dank sharding aspect, uh, it could increase, uh, um, a scalability or a reduce it could reduce fees on layer twos by 100 to 1000 times um and so uh you know the the speed and the the fees will be handled on on the layer twos once um uh ethereum incorporates this uh, uh this sharding model yeah that's very interesting. Yeah, definitely the the action is on the the layer twos. So watch out for those layer twos because they're yep. doing like they're not limited to what um, Ethereum's layer one provides. 
um, but they're able to capitalize on all the security that we offer. Awesome. Well, I think we learned an absolute ton about scalability roadmap, um, you know, the state of Ethereum today for builders, for mainstream folks, and, uh, you know, kind of the overall long-term trend of the network. And so I just like to you know, thank you a lot for your time and, and for being here. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, always a pleasure to talk to you, James. Thank you so much for uh, uh, letting me talk uh, on this space. It's always fun to you know, talk with fellow builders and uh, sort of see what's happening on, on the, uh, in the ecosystem. Yeah, James, I've been an absolute sponge this whole conversation. Thank you for um, coming on to chat with us and, you know, simultaneously blowing my mind throughout this this whole chat. But um, it's been a pleasure hearing your your firsthand perspective and, and experience with all of this. So, um, again, congratulations. And I hope, you know, you're enjoying your much needed and much well-deserved rest. Thank you for taking some time away from that break to come and chat with us. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you everybody for watching and we will see you next time. Thank you guys. All right.